Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. So it's Thursday, which means it's time for our sound bites. And this morning, I pay a visit to the American Visionary Arts Museum with museum founder and director Rebecca Hofberger to look at their latest exhibit, Yum. That's what it's called, Yum, the history, fantasy, and future of food. It features 34 artists joining forces with food scientists, farmers, nutritionists, environmental activists, psychologists, poets, humorists, and others to explore humankind's complex relationship with the food that we eat and consume and grow. As soon as you're there paying your admission at the American Visionary Art Museum, so you are introduced to the subject of yum, the history, fantasy, and future of food with mother's milk and the amazing facts of how good it is for both moms, uh, health-wise, cost-wise, everything else-wise, but also for babies. And I have to tell you, when I was having my babies 45 years and 37 years ago, like the doctor couldn't wait to get the, you know, the, the, the needle into me to say, oh, you don't want to do that. And I'm, I'm really excited. We actually have had so many requests for this information that we have it printed out. But it's, um, I you always... You have it printed out? Yeah. We have it printed out where people can ask for it at the front desk and the front guests will give you the facts on, on you know, breastfeeding versus not. But... Besides saving like, you know, up to like $4,000 a year, you burn daily as the breastfeeding mother the equivalent of having run seven miles. It's very, uh, uh, nursing moms have far less later in life, breast and ovarian cancer, and even osteoporosis, which is almost counterproductive. We think that kids, yeah. you know, suck the calcium out of you, but it's the opposite. Now, what I found fascinating before I even did this show was to share with people, because I was raised on goat's milk, um, because I had obviously some sort of, you know, sensitivity to cow's milk, but the animal that comes closest to our human mother milk is donkey and horses, but boy, are they tough to milk, all right? But isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> they don't like it at all. No, but that, that's true. And, and Go you, milk a donkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't try at home or anywhere. But, uh, you know, what's interesting is that uh, mother's actual milk, human mother's milk, uh, fights va uh, viral, bacterial, and parasites. And in the past, they would, like, squirt it on wounds. I mean, it's that beneficial. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? The, other, the first thing that is interesting, because of all the battle in the world today about oxycotton, that breastfeeding releases oxycotton calming oxytocin. moms at oxytocin, oxytocin, not oxycotton. Oh my God! Through your drug veil, look, you're look, look, look at my dyslexia <laughs> kicking in. I can't even read what it says. It's the same. It is. A, it's a relaxant, and 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 oxytocin. Uh, uh, it, it does calm both both the mothers and the babies, which is kind of a, a great thing. I mean. You know, uh, and oxytocin is like mirror neurons. Mm. Uh, neurons. It's uh, mirror neurons and oxytocin are the things that give us empathy for other people. So that when that baby cries, we don't go, oh, "I gotta get rid of this thing." You know. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 wonderful. It's it's part of what makes us human at our best. So we go from breastfeeding, the first food, mm -hmm. uh, right into the amazing. Food Secrets, selected by the post-secret founder, Frank Warren, has been a great collaborator for the last eight years. And some of the secrets are hilarious, and some are very right. poignant. And I'm going to walk you pretty fast here, okay. because um, my favorites are up at the end yeah. here. But, uh, you know, just like all, all the things that, uh, you know, I ordered two drinks so the people at the drive through window won't know all the food is for <laughs> me. And in preparing this show, I actually, um, uh, you know, uh, lost so far 32 pounds, and I'm going for, like, another 60. You look um, by the way. Oh, yeah, right. You well, do, girl. Uh, less gross, less gross. But, you oh, know, stop. this sign here of our title, look at how the four corners are missing. And it wasn't intentional, but it lets us remind people that in the Bible it, there was the admonition if you were wealthy enough to be able to plant a field full of crop of, of edibles then you should leave the four corners of that field 
uh, uh, you were obligated to leave those four corners for people to do gleaning, for people who needed to eat, didn't mm. have the money to come and pick from the corners of your field. It's a very beautiful understanding. It wasn't so much charity. It was the obligation to help feed other people. And this show is based on that. Basically, it, uh, we are headed for another 2 billion people by conservative estimates in the next 30 years. And what we have to remind ourselves is that we don't want it to be more and more of a um, that wealthy people get the good stuff and kind of mass-produced, uh, not healthy or vital food uh, gets, you know, disseminated to the masses. So we're looking at the food visionaries who really care about, about how people eat and the treatment, the equitable treatment of human beings. And so this show, even though very playful in the extreme, you're going to see our uh, 4,000 peep, marshmallow peep, sculpture by Christian Trombley of the six-foot-tall sweep-a-chef, it's called. Uh, but there's a lot of humor in the show, but it also is about uh, the visionary thinking required to safeguard seed sanctity uh, at a time where we have um, 25,000 acres of... of of agriculture land disappearing every year to you know to drought uh, the last three years um, the Middle East had the hottest records in any inhabited area on record and that is due to only increase their uh, the heat index was 164 and their base temperature was 129 and that is only going to continue so if you think from political upheaval we're seeing great migrations wait till the next few decades when we're seeing we're going to see people leaving because of lack of water and lack of access to food the land won't support the people just at the same time that we're having two billion more people to feed in just the next 30 years so this exhibition throws down the gauntlet of of how we can use the most caring um awakefulness and how the food industry will be um carried out and then what we buy and how we feed ourselves but um, it, I think it's a great conversation. Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. It's, it's critically important to people. I, more, more secrets. I love this one. Sometimes when I'm not sure if something in the refrigerator is spoiled or not, I send it in my husband's lunch. You know, <laughs> I don't know if anybody has done that, but the, certainly that person did. And then I like this. This is a food secret from a kid. It said, in the second grade, I put my hamster's poop in a Tic Tac container and told my arch enemy that they were the new chocolate kind. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I feed lunch meat to my neighbor's vegan dog. <laughs> so, and again, uh, oh, that's, that's, I'm so glad that you came today. So again, you know, where there is this real population explosion, you know, it took a, a hundred years to go from 1 million to 1.6 billion, uh, 1 billion yeah, yeah. to, to 1.6 billion. But then in the next 100 years, it went to 6.1 billion. We're at now 7.4 plus plus. And by 2050, we'll be at 9.5 billion. So it's, it's a very important uh, conversation to have, particularly when within our lifetime, even we as ultra cockers, we're going to see free energy. We really will see that um, because there's just too many inventions that are, are just about there. Um, so what, what else can you manipulate for personal gain at a huge scale? Well, it's food and water. And um, we're going to be honoring uh, two real heroes. Amy P. Goldman has been a master heirloom gardener for 40 years, and she married in her early 60s to Carrie Fowler, who did the kindest thing for our children's children and us. He created the Svavard in Norway Global Seed Vault so that the um, actual uh, seeds, before they were manipulated in any way, like the 20,000 species of tomatoes alone, alone are safeguarded 
to withstand even nuclear war. So they're really mega food heroes, and we'll be honoring them at our gala with a back to the garden theme. So I'm hoping, I know you're coming. You have to wear a little more than a fig leaf, but not that much more if you want. And uh, uh, it will be on the Sunday, November 20th. So let's see the real show. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, I think it, and it is it is critically important. I mean, the, the, yeah, just the notion of saving those seeds. Um, I mean, and maybe then getting to use them. Ah, look, the cafeteria man himself. Yeah, a, a wonderful filmmaker uh, here in town, Richard Chisholm, made, documented uh, a real school food hero, Tony Garassi, who you probably knew well yes. when he was here. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the problems kids have is that they really don't have the nutrition they need. And he, he showed where it, it even made a, a, a better sense, you can hear it in the background, to, you know, to give health, healthy, fresh foods uh, in our schools uh, than to buy this canned stuff that we all were raised for. Then I have all this great, great wall of food facts and you know like lobster was like the ultimate poor person's food lobster uh, was a poor person's food. it was the poorest of the poor people's ah, food ah. like indentured servants would put clauses in that they could not be fed it more than three times a week because they were like being fed it constantly uh, when the colonists first came they reported that up in in New England that the lobsters would wash ashore two feet deep onto the, the you know the sand and so it was used as fertilizers and um, of course you know in evolution just like snails were poor people's food escargot you know um, the big humbling thing is you know I'm well I was a child of the 60s you know what that was like I never did drugs I n have never been drunk and what was so funny I was kind of like a little you know oh, I've never done that aren't I good and then I found out why um, the molecular composition of sugar is almost identical to cocaine and indeed it goes to the very same part of the brain when you ingest sugar as does cocaine and heroin it lights up the brain on the scans the exact same way and so I realized the only reason I, I never have been drunk or whatever is because I've been high on sugar since like I was born my favorite you know I went to France with one word cotton candy in French Baba Papa father's beard is the name and and so it's a very amazing thing to read that like ranch I love ranch dressing well not anymore titanium dioxide used to make food stuffs like this ranch dressing appear to appear whiter it's also used to brighten paints and many sunscreens. Oh my God! Yeah, and it's a terrible carcinogen. And this is let me just read this one over here before we move on. This is really cool. A person who eats a moderate diet that includes meat, fish, chicken, eggs, and seafood will likely consume an estimated 122,000 animals over a lifetime. Yeah. That's all, all, yeah, th there's just amazing things how coffee was, you know, against the law and you could lose your house for trafficking coffee and be put to death in some things. But basically they like, they rather have a drunken populace off of, uh, you know, beer because they didn't question the government in, you know, in charge at the time. Right. So coffee, they notice like, oh my gosh, when people drink coffee, they start talking about what's right and wrong. It's very interesting, funny, and that was like their big objection, that people, that coffee was a drug that made people more awake. <laughs> so there's there's so many fascinating things, but I want you to come up and see okay. on the main floor of the art. All right, let's do that. Um, right away, we have a gardening, Bernard Stigler, a very modest, self-taught artist, and he taught himself how to do animation, and he did a, a totally, because this is called Yum, the history, fantasy, and future of food. We have some marvelous, uh, fantastical works, and here he did the food pyramid about, um, you know, all the different ways that people feed, and right before this show, I was fascinated by a scientist had found how microbes where the sun never shines were eating there was no algae etc they found out that they were actually eating electrons from rocks so you know we all are energy we, we transform things into energy but this is another local artist who in the fantasy very fine named Will Shanklin this is a local artist these three yes. these two here but Come look at the food mandala made 100% out of nothing but paper plates. I'm going to turn it on <laughs> for you now. Oh, wow. Look at that. 
feet in diameter, and it has the uh, soil uh, aerators, the ants, all out of paper plates. The nuggets of corn are all the ribbing of from paper plates. This is by Wendy Brackman, and I'm telling you, it's one of the most popular things in the show. Beautiful. Isn't it magnificent? A hundred percent paper plates and and then I like this guy on the up to the left I wanted to keep the round theme we have uh, Gil Battle Gil Battle was a great forger he was really good and when he served his time in jail he came out of jail and with a dental drill but putting to good use his amazing skills he told the story of what it was like to be imprisoned the visitation to a son they all the fights in prison, but with a detail that only someone who had, was an expert forger could express his jail, wow. uh, his prison experience. Aren't they amazing? Those are amazing pieces. Oh, I love this too from Tolkien. A box without hinges, key or lid, yet golden treasury inside is hid. That's our, that's our, and then of course Judy Tallwing, our wonderful oh, she, artist. She's been before in your exhibit. Absolutely, she's a a, a true elder of the Apache uh, tribe, but a magnificent artist who tells, you know, where we are, the gift of corn. But remember, um, we think of Irish uh, potatoes as Irish and tomatoes as Italian, but indeed these. These were unknowns until the discovery of the Americas, along with almost everything else she ever liked. Uh, and the bounty um, of, this, of this gift of the new world is really something because around the corner here, you're going to see a work by a part Native American. It's a beautiful collage. And it's called, We Gave You Corn, You Gave Us Smallpox. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, but then look at the, these, uh, I mean, magnificent by almost a classical looking painting by Ramon Alejandro a Cuban exile oh. but uh, after his son his oldest son committed suicide at age 19 he did this magical food painting but it has the images here of, of the candles that are, are extinguished on this side but in the mirror still alive very poignant, but just, I think, That's some gorgeous. of the most beautiful work I've ever seen. And then we go in here and we look at Margaret Muntz's work, and we have, you know, baby Marie Antoinette with cotton candy hair, and uh, <laughs> a whole wall of her, her, they almost look like photographs, but they're nothing but colored pencil, Margaret Muntz Loesch. And uh, it's the children who are, are looking over a Judy Chicago-inspired project with women inmates and the sad thing we have to remember is that since 1980 the number of women in our u.s president pre, uh, prisons has has now grown to almost eightfold more than in 1980 it's just terrible and uh, uh, more than 60 percent of them are mothers of children under the age of 18. So this project was taken on by the Elizabeth Sackler Foundation. And actually, I've mentored um, John Lewis as a co-curator of the show. He made the contact and brought this. John Lewis, uh, the congressman? John, which John Lewis? No, John Lewis from Baltimore Magazine. Oh, John, um, John Lewis. Okay. Yeah. And um, he's interned here and uh, uh, as a guest curator and uh, with me in this show. And he brought this wonderful project from the Elizabeth Sackler Foundation where women inmates were asked, if you could have dinner with anybody, historic, your mother, who anybody you love, who would you choose? And, of course, there's Danica, the race car driver on one. But poignantly, we're hearing their testimony in the background. Um, uh, one said, I wish... When she was drunk, she was in jail for hitting uh, uh, and killing a woman when she was drunk driving. And she said, I wish it could be the person whose life I mm. took. Mm. So there's the poignant stuff. We, we talk about how proud we are of people like Sam Drosh, who took the photographs, but of Bonnie Raindrop and others who advocated for the change uh, in Maryland bee law after uh, Maryland oh, yes. right. led the world in kind of the worst die-off. And we can be very proud that that was passed. But people have to understand, there are about 20,000 species of bees. But guess what? Only four of them make honey. So we, the, their importance to keeping them, 71 of the, of the world's top 100 food crops are dependent on bees for 
you know pollination for being able to get them to our table so it's it's quite a, a quite a thing and then I think this is another Margaret Moshe not uh, months Loche. it's her portrait of the African violet queen and her beautiful braids or nothing but bees and then it reminds us that even cotton depends on bees for pollination wow. And then the wall of grace. Oh, what what this. grace did your parents say at the table? Did they say one when you were growing up? They didn't up? say grace. I know you were, you, were, <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were discussing how to make the world a better place. But what I love is uh, with these graces, some of them are funny, you know, uh, rub-a-dub-dub, you know, thanks for the grub, yay God. But um, we go through all the different kinds of graces. And what's great is that the Native American and the Buddhist are almost identical in that they're the only two that specifically thank the plants and the animals who have given of themselves so that we can, our lives can benefit. You mind if I read one? You read any. So this is the Buddhist grace. This food is the gift of the whole universe. Each morsel is a sacrifice of life. May I be worthy to receive it. May the energy in this food give me strength transform my unwholesome qualities into wholesome ones. I am grateful for this food. May I realize the path of awakening for the sake of all beings. Hmm. And you have the Native American just below it. We give thanks for the plants and animals who have given themselves so that we can enjoy this meal together. We also give thanks to our friends and family who traveled here today. May this meal bring us strength and health. Mm. A perfect time of year. You know, my this museum opened up 21 years ago at Thanksgiving in a spirit of Thanksgiving and continues. I, I love these seed paintings. Willie. Yeah. You know what? This wonderful Jim Bueller had done these seed paintings of famous musicians, you know, Johnny Cash, B.B. King. Oh, wow. But I said, but you haven't done Willie, and Willie has done more more uh, of, than any entertainer for the small yes. farmers. Yeah, absolutely has. We have Zane Campbell's work, another local guy. This is the first exhibition in 21 years where all of our artists are living. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. And then here, <laughs> Jerry Beck, my dear friend, uh, worked with the Boys and Girls Club of Massachusetts with volunteers old and young. And uh, these are called the Crumbeteers. He did, I wanted a wall which would really showcase bread. We all make bread in our own way, just like we all come to figure out, you know, uh, the infinite reality of, of a guide in our own way, you know. And what's interesting is that here it is a bread mural with toast. And, and I love it says, to those who hunger, give bread. To those who have bread, give hunger for justice. Mm. You know, so you see how he talks about the, the production, all in toast and bread. This is a whole mural just done in real bread stuff. Thank God for the patarakases, you know. Um, and here we have the farmer who tilled the, the soil to grow the wheat or whatever you're making into bread. Then the processing, then the enjoyment, then the spicing. And then done in pumpernickel, the cup of coffee with the swirls of, of latte in it in light bread, uh, savoring of the bread. And then... The oh. home, the, uh, the roof, a hala roof, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's all different kinds. We all make bread in our own way, yeah. own language. My grandfather was a challah baker. That's what really? he did. Yep. Where in in Poland or here? Oh, here. Really? Mm -hmm. At where? Parisians or where? He worked a bunch of places. My, actually, my grandfather and his brother and father actually had the first bagel shop in Baltimore in 1904. <laughs> I'm not, you always are at the cutting edge of everything. I, I love this. This is a Jean-Marc Roussel, who's a Frenchman whose family said, you can't be a, an artist, even though he drew from the time he could hold a pencil, because it's just, we don't have money for that. So he went to the library in France and found out how they made paints in the Middle Ages from egg white and pigment. And to this day, every color you see here, we want to do a joint program with the Walters to have people learn how do you make these luminous paints yourself as they did in the Middle Ages. It's another level. Yeah. And it's all very food-centric work. Uh, it, it was wonderful to have him. This person looks familiar in this painting. You, 
<laughs> Actually, it's his uh, a grandfather uh, of Jean-Marc, uh, uh, you know, Bruciel. And he also had a best friend who was a baker. And he said nothing was more wonderful than to get up at 3 a.m. and go keep company with the lone baker of their village in France and be able to smell that bread, but just, you know, be there and have coffee together so he wouldn't be so alone when the rest of France is sleeping. It makes me think of the getting up at 4 in the morning with my grandfather as he would make the challah for the oh yeah, for Shabbos. Yeah. Did he give you his recipe? You know, he never did, but it was the best challah in the world. It melted in your mouth. Just melted in your mouth. Did he use saffron? Do you remember to make it yellow? Yes. He did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right now, that's what I want you to tell your listeners. Um, don't love somebody's, you know, a grandparent. Anybody's, uh, you know, makes the best X Y Z in the world. Get that recipe, recipe. or Save go it. spend a day with them and learn. What a wonderful thing. Absolutely. This is Christian Twombly who lives up in Westminster. His amazing from the Carroll County has a competition every year that's fabulous about uh, taking peeps, those marshmallow candies, and making sculpture. And this is the Swedish chef that's been very po uh, popular. 4,000 of them. Wow. Better in the sculpture than in my palate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and our old, our own Bobby Adams, who we had last year, who right. was the I love Bobby. yeah, oh, what a great guy! And he did Sugar Man. You know, he's fought with his weight most of his adult life, and he's talking about about the addictive quality of sugar. Um, here we have Joe Bellows' work. Who, when you were a kid, did you ever go someplace that had like um, paneled wood paneled? Uh, you know, walls, and you lay in bed, and you would pick out faces and yeah, yeah. animals, right? We yeah, all sure. do that. Yeah. Well, Joe Bello uh, takes packaging from pizza and uh, cereal, and he sees a world of forms and and life in them, and he cuts them with his great great scissors. He sees just like without manipulating really anything, but what he's seeing in there. This one we call is it murder or suicide? It's a pizza box where it looks like the guy fell. <laughs> Is that great? And animals and hats. But here is is uh, Joaquim Pomez's work, who was so, we got him to come up here from uh, from Cuba, and he experienced the um, the embargo and, and the horrors of that for the people on the ground. And he said the, the Cuban mother, see everything is very uh, motherly shape, had to be so inventive to make meals out of little more than eggs and what was growing at that time um, in Cuba for their families. And we cannot forget that President Assad of Syria is, is, is practicing, and, and it's horrific that he's a physician, um, uh, you know, kneel or starve. And there's so many villages that if they weren't in his camp early on, he is literally starving his own people. And it's just the saddest of things. It's against all international convention, and we should never be part of that. So we have some wonderful, we have Food Inc. Well, Food Inc. is a great documentary. Yes, yep. I've interviewed them. And the whole uh, aspect here, we go right over here to our coconut heads. Have you ever seen better coconut heads with even eyelashes and beards and things? This is by a Finnish guy who moved and married a beautiful wine woman and lives very simply, gets so much personality out of, out of the, uh, aren't they good? And then we have a lot of food facts, you know, uh, throughout. And let's finish Who with- this? Coconut ranks high among superfoods its many healthful food benefits include a decrease in fungal, bacterial, and yeast infections. Tribal societies that extensively cook with coconuts healthy fat have little heart disease applied on the body. Coconut oil aids healthy skin and hair. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. That, like, there are good fats and bad. And I want to show you this thing over, over here. Um, basically, this is what exactly like an exact model of what a half pound of human fat looks like oh my. and we don't want to put an emphasis on appearance but we want to just say that there are two kinds of fat the good kind that's right under your skin and then the visceral that is what beer bellies are made out of and what's bad about them is that they 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 you know fat people tend to sweat more because they it raises their core temperature but it also um Visceral fat exudes hormones, it exudes toxins and stores toxins, and so as a result, it, it 
it it very much um, compromises the effective uh, functioning of your internal organs, particularly things like your kidney and you know, uh, uh, and and certainly your pancreas, etc. So uh, we're at a time where now more people die from complications of excessive eating than who die of starvation, which is still a serious problem, but it's actually gone the other way. So I love the quote from Orson Welles. You want to read that? My doctor told me I had to stop throwing intimate dinner parties for four, unless there are three other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and Bobby has a thing because it's not just women who worry about their appearance. He, oh, no. he he talked a lot about how many men, including and there's a hidden Johnny Depp in here who was very n not proud of how he looked, you know, and um, it's it, you know they worried about their torsos too. Um, I can't wait to pay homage to your dear friend Ernestine oh, yes. uh, Shepherd. Because Ernestine has shown that I don't believe she started her transformation work as a, a professional, you know, a competitive bodybuilder until she was 60. Yeah, 50, and, 50, 60 yeah. and she just turned 80. And my gosh, how, how fabulous. She's an amazing lady. So we'll finish, I guess, here with Ruby C. Williams. Sure. Ruby, and who is she? Oh, Re well, Reverend Ruby C. Williams was brought up as a sharecropper in Plant City, Florida, which is the strawberry capital of the world. But then she became a reverend, married a reverend, had her two children, moved to New Jersey, and then caught her husband cheating with her best friend. Mm. And it, it devastated her. She moved back to Plant City, and she had a little roadside stand, and she couldn't afford, you know, professional signs, so she would, you know, paint, you know, whatever they were selling at that time. But she was also so traumatized by her loss, and she painted one that uh, Dudley Glendening owned, and I, I coveted it. It was... What? You're in a hotel with my best friend? How can you preach the word of God and live? You know, but uh, so people started buying these amazing, colorful signs. She's been shown in the Smithsonian. There's a Swedish uh, group that just made a film on, on Reverend Ru uh, you know, Ruby C. Williams and a lovelier person. She's a healer as well. She'll be here this spring to meet everybody. That's lovely. That's great. And a fistful of strawberries. Mm. I love that quote. I think it's a good one for If you look the right way, you can see that the whole world is a garden. And remember, our own Jim Rouse said, cities were meant to be gardens in which to grow beautiful people. And again, I think we have to hold on to that hope. You know, I went to Medellin, Colombia last year to find out how in the world they went from hellhole, murder capital of the world, in 10 years to have a murder rate less than half of Baltimore cities. So we can change. Uh, and I think it's when we value uh, poor people as an asset and not a liability. And we begin thinking, because there's good precedent, for how do you change opportunity uh, access for everybody and you get a, a city where everybody is working in much more uh, peace and harmony and for the world's murder capital to go to uh, the one of the most positive studied cities around um, I think we can learn a great deal from them I think you're right thank you very much for doing this on your day when the museum is not open oh it's always open to you, Mark. You and Valerie can come anytime. Again, uh, you know, we're, this is a, a, a theme. Um, down here, I, I forgot by our elevator, you know, our Alfred E. Newman bed and the, the wonderful Divine and John Waters um, hygrometer outside. We're on the uh, yeah. wet day, baby Divine comes out, on, on the dry comes out, uh, baby John. Um, we have Patty Cuspita who lost... Um, uh, really, her mother, her brother, and her younger sister, um, she had no idea her younger sister wasn't totally well um, within nine months. And she took her mother's gold-encased um, uh, china. They were not a wealthy family, but after the war, her dad was uh, stationed in Germany, and the mother bought beautiful china. And guess what? In 60 years, she never once used it. 
because she was waiting for like, you know, the queen or the president to come over. And so Patty's message is this, don't save your good China for when the queen comes because she's an ain't coming, right? Uh, don't serve your best food dishes only when company is coming. To treat the people you love the most as if they are also worthy of that. Uh, ban electronics from the dinner table. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, keep conversation happy and pleasant as you eat. Because she said anger is a bitter brew. Um, and ask people for, again, for their recipes. Because, you know, um, just like you would wish, wouldn't you want like to be able to make the, the same challah that your grandfather was able to make? And somewhere, there's got to be somebody who wrote something down. Maybe it was a pinch of this and a pinch of that. Oh, my gosh. But you said it just melted in your mouth. Huh? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, everybody has food stories and food secrets. Um, and I hope that people will, will be encouraged from visiting here to realize the power of, of how we shop and what we, we buy um, is in our own hands. For our families and to share more we're going into two billion more people so we better have these things worked out as soon as possible thank you rebecca hoffberger mike steiner That was Rebecca Hoffberger, founder and director of the American Visionary Arts Museum, talking about the new exhibit, Yum! The History, Fantasy, and Future of Food, which is on display at the museum right now. We have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking with two scientists about an important scientific advancement that could pave the way for a potential breakthrough in farming, carbon-neutral fertilizer production. Why? Stay with us and find out. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future. Produced right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to have a conversation with Dr. Catherine Brown, staff scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and Dr. Paul King, staff scientist and manager of the photobiology group at the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, Laboratory, about an amazing new discovery about nitrogen and how to create it that could alter the way we farm and do things. And Kate and Paul, welcome. Good to have you both with us. Thank you, Mark. Our pleasure. We've covered a lot over the years here on the program about both nitrogen and, and phosphorus pollution in the water and, and, uh, and also how it's created. But take us a step backwards. I don't know who wants to begin is fine, either one of you. Dr. Brown, maybe you can start it. Just to, to, to describe, first of all, again, for our listeners, a refresher course here in this natural world of nitrogen and the created world of nitrogen and where we were before this moment. About 60% of the nitrogen in uh, the world is created biologically by nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Um, and then about 40% in the biosphere comes from industrial processes, primarily from the Haber-Bosch process, um, and then, of course, most of that 40% is then used for things like agriculture in order to keep up with the food supply necessary to feed the population of the world. So the Haber-Bosch process, Paul, is something that, that, that many people have argued about because of, of what it takes to create this. Right. So uh, it's, it's a fairly old process. It's, a, it's sort of the, it's the industrial standard. It requires a lot of energy in the form of heat and pressure and uses a lot of natural gas, so it, it requires hydrogen, and that comes from natural gas reforming. So it has a rather large carbon footprint. And But the process that you have, have, have worked on um, in, in creating uh, nitrogen is this light-driven process, right? Uh, which is, I mean, it seems to me really revolutionary uh, in terms of what its possibilities are. That's correct. Uh, we, we've taken the, the enzyme that Kate mentioned that microbes use to naturally fix nitrogen into ammonia and, and coupled it to a molecule that harvests light. That light harvesting is what provides the energy and the uh, necessary 
reducing power to convert the nitrogen into ammonia. So, so Catherine, could you talk a bit about the process? I mean, what, what you all did, what the process was for you in, in your kind of working on this and discovering it? How did this take place? Uh, well, so we've actually been working on these types of processes for uh, the last seven and a half years or so um, using different enzymes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a lot of experience uh, creating these kind of structures, which is really what led to this breakthrough. The essential components of the reaction are we use these nanocrystals, mm-hmm. which can absorb light and create reducing potentials, and then we couple them to enzymes. Um, and we've done, as I said, a number of different enzymes. And in this case, we tried it with nitrogenase, which is used by bacteria to fix nitrogen, um, primarily in the soil. Um, and then we are able to take that an enzyme out of the um, microbe and couple it to these nanocrystals that absorb light, and then those nanocrystals are able to create the reducing potential and then donate it to the enzyme to drive this reaction of nitrogen reduction. So the way I understand it, the, the, I mean, the, the, the process that's been done forever, the people call the Haber-Bosch process, to creating this nitrogen is, uh, is, is, um, and, and changing it to, to ammonia, is, is, it requires a lot of fossil fuel, right? And, 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 and high temperatures. Describe what that process is and how this would change this. What our process can do is, is rather than using sort of the, the heat, uh, which really comes, I think, comes mainly from uh, coal-fired power plants um, and, and other kind of uh, fossil fuel-dependent methods, what, we, what we've done is replaced all of that with the, using the energy of sunlight. So there's enough sunlight uh, impinging on the earth on a daily basis to power the global needs uh, on, on a yearly scale. So there's a huge amount of energy potential and sunlight that's kind of uh, there to be taken uh, and used in, in this kind of manner. So it's a renewable, sustainable source of energy that uh, has much lower environmental impact uh, on the long term and, and makes this uh, technology potentially uh, uh, improvement on the, on the Haber-Bosch process. So and I, I just add to that. Oh, that please, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. The Haber-Bosch process is also done at very high pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that the enzyme does that's, that's really incredible is that it functions at normal atmospheric pr- pressure. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to using the energy from sunlight, as Paul said, this also allows you to save the energy of having to create the very high pressures that are necessary for the Haber-Bosch process. So a couple of things. So I, I'm curious. I mean, this is the, to me, this kind of research using nanotechnology and 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 solar being able to use literally solar power to create this this the, the nitrogen people use to farm i mean this what what will it do in terms of saving our 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 our, our need to use fossil fuels what could the potential outcome really be so haber bosch uses about 2 to 5% of the global energy uh in 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 the production of ammonia so we would save I mean, potentially you'd be saving that amount of, uh, of uh, energy in the form of fossil fuels. If you were to completely replace Haber-Bosch with some kind of photo-driven or photoelectrochemical type process. Keep in mind, though, these were very early days and very far from that kind of scenario. So this is a long, kind of a long-term uh, view of the impact of the work. So that, 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 I'm glad you said that because I was about to ask that question, Dr. K. Brown, about... about um about what it would take and how many years it would take and what it would mean to take this to scale. How would that be done? Um, I think, as Paul said, we're very early days, so I, that's something of an impossible question to answer because <laughs> there's still, um, you know, we look at this as scientists who are interested in really fundamental processes, and um, there's still a lot of open questions about how these enzymes work. And um, as much as the energy benefits that this work gives, that's, our interest in that really if you want to take these this kind of a process and make it on an industrial scale you have to understand fundamentally how these enzymes work how they work at room temperature and room pressure and really understand the fundamental chemistry that they're doing Um, and we believe that this process can help guide that research because our our system can allow us to ask some fundamental questions that haven't been asked yet. Um, and then in addition, it represents this potential for uh, doing nitrogen fixation with solar-driven um, energy. So uh, I think we view it really as 
laying the groundwork for the fundamental research that needs to be done to understand how to make it an industrial process. Got you. So it's, that's really important to understand where we are in the pro, where this takes us in the process. So, so again, let me just come back, uh, Paul King, to kind of think through what you actually did when, when, when you kind of uh, show that these nanocrystals of I hope I have this right, cadmium sulfide could har- harvest the light. Correct. That's correct. Right. But so, so you actually did. Trans, you actually did make the transition from nitrogen into ammonia. Did that take place? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell, playing off of what Catherine Brown said. So, what are the next fundamental steps? Right. So, I th- I think what what we'd like to do is under as Kate said, understand the enzyme better and and how it works and how it achieves its really challenging chemical transformation under rather uh, benign conditions. And if we understand that, pro, uh, you know, sort of the working the 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 working part of the enzyme in, the, in that level of detail, we can inspire the the synthetic production of mimics of, of enzymes that uh, are cheaper to make um, and can be made on a large scale. So we can make this process overall more scalable because we're always working on very small reaction scales right now. Mm-hmm. In order for this to have global impact, it needs to be on a much, much larger scale. And in order to do that in a, a cost-effective manner, we sort of need to evolve towards more synthetic uh, designs in terms of the catalyst. So the enzyme is, is, is an excellent model for understanding how to make difficult chemical transformations work efficiently. And what we want to do is reproduce that model in a more simple scale in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that can be more, more scalable, you know, scaled up in a larger so, way. So, uh, Catherine, Rock, could you talk just a mi- for a minute about just how you even, how how you were brought to this research? I mean, what what how did this process begin for you, for all of you? Uh, well, it actually started on a, an entirely different enzyme, uh, one that actually produces hydrogen. Uh huh. Um, and and so we've been working for uh, a number of years now on coupling that enzyme to these nanostructures and looking at both um, how the catalysis is driven by uh, coupling the enzyme to the nanocrystal, and then also some fundamental questions about what that can tell us about how the enzyme works and how the nanocrystals work. So our collaborators, who are also on this paper, they, they study the nanocrystals, and, and they're interested in the fundamental chemistry of, and physics of the nanocrystals. Um, and, uh, and then we started branching out into several other enzymes, um, and at a certain point, um, based on other collaborations with the other groups that are on this paper who work on nitrogenase, um, we sort of led to the question of, well, do we think this would work? Um, we had this established data set um, and a great deal of experience using these other enzymes, and so it seemed like a natural extension to get a little more ambitious and try this much more challenging chemistry, um, working with these experts in the field of nitrogenase. And um, and really, this I, I really can't stress enough how much this was a collaborative effort. Right, right. Um, not just Paul and I, but there's a long list of authors, and everyone contributed. And really, it was a kind of a dream team of expertise in um, nanocrystals, in the enzymes, and then Paul and I are really uh, have a lot of experience putting those two things together. Um, and so we were very fortunate to work with excellent collaborators and really sort of all come together to make the whole process worked based on a lot of years of experience. And I, I think this is really exciting, and I think one of the things that, that, that what our listeners hope to get out of this as well is this in, in some ways, Paul King, is where I, I hope people consider, that the government and other places consider really investing the kind of resources in, in bringing this to scale and bringing the research to the point where, it can, where we can actually use it. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think we're going to see kind of a growing interest from, from the research community in the study of, of of this enzyme, and, and, the, and it's actually quite fascinating because it does a lot of interesting chemistry in addition to N2 reduction. It'll do some uh, reduction of CO to methane. It, it's, fat, it's a fantastic enzyme in, in terms of, the, of what it can achieve. And, and I, I want to kind of go back a little bit. We, you know, we as a national lab, we, we, we focus and study, you know, ways in which to uh, develop renew, different renewable energy uh, uh, processes. And so this this work is really also the integration of what we do well as a national lab, which is light harvesting and making these kind of next-generation photovoltaic-type materials, 
and, and, redox, and the study of redox biochemistry and, and this reaction that we, uh, we reproduce, you know, this is something that happens in microbes all the time. So there's photosynthetic microbes out there that use light energy and, and make uh, nitrogen into ammonia. So we really took kind of two different technologies, the uh, artificial synthetic light capture technology and the enzyme technology of microbes, put them together to make this work. Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time with us, and, and this is uh, just amazing, very exciting work. Dr. Paul King and Dr. Catherine Brown are both staff scientists at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Dr. King is also the manager of the photobiology group at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. An amazing discovery. We'll be linking to the articles uh, from Science Other Places that describe more about what they've done. And thank you so much for taking your time with the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites today for our listeners. Thank you, thank you Mark. Take me to Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And the podcast of Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Mm-hmm.